Guy here with a quick message before the latest pod here on Blood Red. 2020's been pretty rubbish, but here on Blood Red, we wanted to say thank you to all of our continued and loyal listeners. Part of that has been the creation of our Blood Red census, which you can find in the description of this podcast. All we want to know is what you think of our content and also give you the chance to shape how much and what you get to listen to in future. If you can check it out and fill it in, it won't take longer than two minutes to do. You can even manage it between your Christmas dinner and your pudding. It's in the description, as I say, and that's all. Enjoy the pod. Thanks for your support this year. We're all in it with each other and hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. This is the Post Game Podcast on the Blood Red Channel, bringing you all the big match reaction with views from the press box, the dugout and the stands. No Boxing Day football for the Reds this year, but that's not going to stop the post-game podcast here on Blood Red. I'm Guy Clark and have a couple of our regular post-game contributors here with me as we take a look back on 2020, the year the Reds finally won the Premier League and Null and Voiders were out in force. And we had a summer transfer saga to contend with as Thiago Alcantara eventually did make the move to Anfield. Alongside me, two stalwarts then of the post-game podcast, Ross Strachan and Mark Baker. Gentlemen, thanks for uh, joining me and uh, best start by saying Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you as well, Guy, yeah. Yeah, same to you, Guy. Yeah, we're going to, as I say, talk through sort of 2020, the themes of the whole calendar year, as it were. And Ross, I'll come to, to you sort of first up. And even going back to January, it seems as though it was a different millennium, let alone within the same year. But just wondered for you, sort of had the FA Cup win over Everton, the league win at Anfield over Manchester United. Was that win over United probably the moment that you really felt in your heart of hearts that this league title is coming to Anfield? Uh, that was definitely the moment for me. It was it was probably the moment of the season for me. That was when, yeah, like you say, we realised the title was coming. It was so late in the game, and until that point, you didn't want to say, you know, we're going to win it, we're going to win it. We were so far ahead, but you never wanted to admit it to yourself. And until that moment when he scored, then you thought, yeah, it's, it's, this is going to be our year. And obviously, a lot of things happened since then, and we were all really worried about what was going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Mark, what was your view on that? With with Salah obviously getting that late goal and the way the game had played out, it seems to sort of if you if you do think back and think of that title win, sort of seems to I suppose highlight exactly how that league title was wrapped up. A, a late goal, sort of a cagey game, but Liverpool in the end too good for the opposition. Yeah, I suppose so, guy. I think I think I haven't waited so long for obviously the title and growing up with a lot of disappointments. I'm always pessimistic in that sense that even probably then I didn't believe that, that Liverpool would go on and win the league for one reason or another, even though they were so far ahead. I think you'd always look at games and Liverpool, people forget Liverpool had a lot of close games throughout the season, particularly home games and a couple of late goals away from home. So they managed to get over the line and I suppose for everyone from the outside would have believed that it was it was done then. But I think just the pessimist inside me probably felt there was still a long way to go and, and wouldn't have been happy until it was the, the, the final points were accumulated, really. No, definitely. And as I say, I suppose January was made even sweeter with that Curtis Jones winner against Everton. And, and stay with you, Mark, on Curtis Jones. I suppose this year, 2020, has been the real breakout year for him. Yeah, Guy, I think he's a really special player. I think, obviously, to, to be able to come into Liverpool's team at the age he has. But you could see from the very first sort of moments that he entered the field of play and, and getting minutes competitively for Liverpool in the first team, 
you could tell he had something about him in terms of being able to create in that final third. I think he'd operated as part of a front three on the left, potentially for the younger age groups, and obviously played an advanced midfield role. For me, it wasn't about whether he had the ability to play in Liverpool's side. I think I was looking at him more of a sort of player profile fit in that Liverpool play very uh, free central midfield players who's a lot of work is, is done without the ball in terms of covering, filling gaps, um, stopping counter-attacks, that kind of thing, and balancing the team. And could he find a role within that midfield free to be able to accumulate game time? But no, absolutely looks a top-quality player, excellent technique. And, and like I say, he seems to, obviously it's gone on now since January, but he seems to been able to mould himself into the kind of midfielder without the ball that can have a, a start and selection place on a regular basis, really. So a fantastic start to his career, but he's definitely one who looks to have that that special ability um, that, that separates them kind of players coming into the team at that age. How impressed have you been with him, Ross, seeing Curtis Jones sort of develop into a first-teamer? Obviously, Trent as a local lad's in the team as well, but there is always that clamour for sort of academy lads to come through and, and make a, a space in the team their own. Yeah, I've been I've been a huge fan of Curtis Jones, you know, since the first time. I remember seeing him, you know, on the LFC TV channel and over the under twenty three and stuff. And he, he stood out there and he scored a lot of goals at under twenty three level and he just seemed to have that extra little bit of quality and grace on the ball. He's just got that that little bit of X factor that's hard to find and I thought I think the way he's developed's been great and I think it's been great for him this season. Obviously, I think he's got a bit more of a chance with um, a few of the injuries we've had, so he's played a little bit more than probably he was thought he was going to. But he took it with both hands, and I, I, I think he's like I said, he's he's probably been one of our best players this season. He's been excellent. Yeah, he has been brilliant this season. So, I suppose if twenty twenty kicked off with a high point of the win over Man United and the cup win over Everton, Ross, I suppose the real sort of disappointment on on the pitch of 2020 was the Champions League elimination against Atletico Madrid. It was the one team I think we were all fearing that Liverpool would draw in the round of 16 last season. They got them and obviously we, we know how it played out. That first leg, the sort of 1-0 defeat sort of seemed to set the tone and at home just couldn't quite see them off. Yeah, it was, it was disappointing. This was obviously that was the last time I was at Anfield actually and Seems like an absolute lifetime ago. You, you go there full of hope, and you still there was little rumours of COVID. But at, at the time, I wasn't I wasn't too concerned. I didn't think that was going to be the last time I'd be in Anfield. And yeah, so it just seemed so long ago, and I'm disappointing to go out. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it, it didn't really matter in the season. It was all about winning that league and getting over the line for me with the league. Yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose a number of fans, that that point will resonate of last time being in Anfield. We know Mark how sort of emotionally driven and charged that this Liverpool team are. And it has been so sort of frustrating. Of course, we had the last couple of games where a, a few fans have been back in the ground. But I don't know about you, but for, for a few people, it's sort of lost the appeal in a way, sort of not having the fans there. And especially with Liverpool winning this league title. Yeah, I mean, it was never, it was never going to be the same guy in terms of when Liverpool won the league, and and obviously the celebrations that couldn't take place, and no matter what anyone says, obviously it did put a bit of a dampener on the whole situation as much as it can, because obviously everyone was delighted. It would have been, I suppose, extra special to have that day in which everyone could celebrate and get the frustrations of how many years it had been uh, out of the system, and, and give the players the the sort of send off they deserve for the achievements. Um, I mean, just on a personal level, on on in terms of the, the fans being off the ground, obviously it's a 
it, it is a negative as a spectacle. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But one thing I do actually don't hear said too much is in terms of some of the positives, and there isn't many, but I've actually enjoyed the communication between being able to, to hear the communication between the players, especially Liverpool. It gives a different dynamic to when you're viewing the game, obviously, to, to being able to to not have that um, privy to that kind of information. And, it, you know, I, I look at the way Henderson, Van Dijk were communicating throughout the games and it, it just makes you see the game slightly differently and gives you a different insight into the dynamics of the team. So from that point of view, I think that that is something I'll actually miss. I'll actually miss that because I think that's been really good in terms of, you know, um, being able to hear that. But yeah, in general, uh, not just the parade, but in, in, in the general games, it's it's nowhere near the spectacle that it, it should be really. And, but it looks like it's going to go on for a longer period of time. Yeah, it certainly does, unfortunately. But I know that you two guys actually realising sort of on, on the podcast through the course of this season in particular have very much been on differing sides of the fence in terms of VAR. And, and Ross, I'll come to you just sort of, not, not just on VAR, but the, the point I was really thinking of is not having fans in the ground, how that has affected, I suppose, even your enjoyment of football, watching it and sort of seeing how the end of last season played out and obviously the start of this. Yeah, it's, it's massively, massively ruined my enjoyment of it. I, I, I love going to the game. I love, I, I like going to the pub to watch the game, getting that type of atmosphere. And it's, it's not been the same watching it. It's not been it's like watching the game, every single game, just watching in the house on your own. To me, that is not what I watch football for. Football is more than just 90 minutes to me. It's, it's the whole experience of going or going out to watch it, meeting up with, I mean, meet up with my dad regularly for the match or my friends. And I've, I have missed all that. Um, I've I've not watched that many other. I've watched some other games of other, but I've, I just I just haven't enjoyed it at all. And then when you throw VAR into the mix, I mean, I, I've got so many issues with VAR. It's that strangled so much enjoyment. There's, there's there's positives of VAR. Don't get me wrong, I understand, but it's just it's not being used correctly in my opinion. And until it changes, for me, it needs to be taken out of the game. Yeah, and I suppose, Mark, that there is that bone of contention with VAR that we have sort of seen decisions be made. Of course, you think of even Salah getting the penalty against West Ham at Anfield where he was kicked on the hill and the penalty was given. But others like at, at Brighton, I, I think more the frustration has probably been with the implementation of VAR for sort of the lack of consistency. I suppose you're giving human beings opportunity to double down on their mistakes as opposed to correct them. Yeah, I think I think first of all, guy, I think there's two different versions of VAR. Obviously, there's the offside VAR and the the decisions VAR, and I think very often they get clumped together in the same sort of conversation. I mean, the offside one is is, is very difficult. I mean, I look at the decisions that are getting made in terms of the minute details, and and that can't be right. You know, there has to be a rethink of how you go about doing that. Um, absolutely no question about it in my mind. How you do that, though, I mean, listen, if they aren't able, the best brains in the football world haven't been able to come to a satisfactory conclusion on how you adapt it at this moment in time, then it's probably a difficult one because where do you draw the line? It's all right, people saying, well, it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be the top of the arm, top of the foot, etc. But there's still going to be minute decisions in which they have to be made. So it's always going to be close. But in terms of the, the actual decision VAR ones, so I always believe that it can't be a bad thing to give 
an opportunity when the game's 100 mile an hour, the referee's got a really difficult job. I never think it could be a bad thing to, to give people a second look at it because essentially that should make more accurate decisions as a percentage. However, the, we, you can't account for the person making that decision. It's, it's Ultimately, it comes down to the referee, doesn't it? If the referee hasn't got the correct mindset to give what he what we believe or the majority of people believe is the correct decision, that's where the problem comes in. But it, it's, I think you've just pointed out the Brighton one. So for me, the Brighton one was a penalty. I don't, I don't understand what Robertson's doing. I don't understand the big uproar about it. I understand that it wouldn't be given in normal time. But for me, I'd be looking at Robertson. I'd be saying, why are you making that tackle at that stage in the game? I think it's reckless. I think it's rash. I think you should be much more colder in that situation. And I, I always tend to find that we're, we're quick to sort of jump on, well, the referee. But actually, when you actually look back at it in the Robertson situation, for me, it was a penalty. And I, if I was in the dressing room, I'd be, I'd be touching on Robertson more than I would the, the VAR. Although, obviously, after the game, Klopp's obviously frustrated. But, yeah, so I think the, there is positives to it. And you've just pointed out Mohamed Salah's one against West Ham. And, you know, I think too often the actual positive bits of it don't get as much attention as the negative. So it's hard to get a right, correct balance. But, yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle of it. But I do think there's two different stages of it, which is obviously offside and then the decision-making, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, exactly what you're saying. I felt actually very similar about the, the Fabinho challenge against Sheffield United on the edge of the box. Why did he need to make the challenge? Yeah. yeah, exactly, as opposed to losing heads as, as to whether it was inside or outside of the box. Let's get back onto our, our themes, though, sort of of 2020. And Ross Mark said before sort of growing up and being a Liverpool fan, always had that pessimism over whether the Reds would see sort of the title one. And just want to sort of ask you guys the moment where you were sort of when uh, Chelsea had beat Man City at Stamford Bridge and Liverpool were crowned champions because I suppose for, for both of you guys you're of a generation of growing up it's just been something that's sort of been uh, taunting you I suppose with blue mates or other fans of other clubs that Liverpool are never going to win a title but after 30 years Ross they did finally get it done Yeah it was a bit of a strange one for me that night um, you know we've been looking at the you're obviously looking at the fixtures when is it going to be won and I've made plans and you know, we'll, we'll have a garden party this day and We'll get the telly set up and all that. And then the way results went, it came up. It was it City Chelsea, wasn't it? That if City, if Chelsea lost, if Chelsea beat City, then we'd be the title. And at, at, at no point did I think that City were going to lose that game. So I, I, I don't think I even watched the first 10 or 20 minutes. And then I, was, I kept checking the score. I thought, I'm going to have to put this on. I was just sat in the house on my own. My mates are texting me, my dad's texting me. And then, yeah, it's. It was just a surreal, surreal thing. And then, obviously, when the final whistle went and they settled the field with champions, it was, it was just, it was just a strange feeling. I was just, I was on me, I was celebrating on my own. You could hear the fireworks going. You could, you know, I was, I was crying my eyes out. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It was, but it was strange. It was strange, and it would have been nice to have been with family and friends at that point. But I suppose at that point, it, it we just had to get over the line. And, any way was possible at that point, and I was happy. I was very happy, obviously. Yeah, no, definitely. Mark, what was it like for you the moment Liverpool became champions? Yeah, it was strange, really, Guy. I, I suppose a bit of nostalgia about it, really. That you sort of think of all the players who've tried to do it, all the managers, all the emotion that you've invested in it, really, because you know, obviously, there's been some near misses down the years, and some some years in which Liverpool haven't even challenged. But I just think. 
you know you think of the games that you've been to with your dad and stuff like that and and there's that lack of lack of success that you've sort of for your period of time that you've been been watching Liverpool and yeah just a reminder a reminder about all the games all the opportunities all the players and and for it to finally have have been ended um and come to a head where Liverpool have actually uh, won the league it was it was a strange feeling really but but one which I'm glad that I got to experience in my lifetime because there was times I'm sure Ross will be the same where you think to yourself I don't, I don't even know where the next challenge is coming from here with We'd, we'd lose players after a good title challenge and then you felt you were back to square one. Other teams were investing, um, which skewed sort of the league in terms of it wasn't as much a level playing field as it has been in the past. And I think the big thing was that Liverpool, unlike the rest of the teams, were very often forced to sell the better players, which made, made it doubly difficult. So, no, just um, obviously fantastic feeling, but a strange one at the same time because it was almost unbelievable, really, where you thought it's, it's finally over. The Post Game Podcast on the Blood Red Channel. We what sort of Mark says there, I suppose even during the Premier League era, there's been times where... You look at Liverpool and you obviously know the history of the club, but the, the stadium hadn't been sort of upgraded for a long while. Obviously, it had been at Melwood for so long, yet now the main stand, the Anfield Road stands in the offing, transfer record fees have been sort of laid out under Jurgen Klopp's tenure and obviously the, the change of training facility. It does really feel now as though Liverpool last set for a period of dominance, hopefully, like they had obviously in the, the 70s and 80s. I mean, that's that's the, that's what you'd hope so, yeah. I mean, we've always been obviously a big club, obviously because of our history and we've won things, bits and bobs throughout the years. But we've never, we've never just reclaimed that dominance. You know, to, to what United done basically the whole of my growing up, winning league after league, and you were so jealous seeing it. And they've become such a massive, massive worldwide club, and we have that name, and we're one of the biggest clubs in the world. And now. We've got it on. We've got this team on the pitch at the minute that's backing that up. We've, you know, we've got European cups in the bag, championships in the bag, the stadiums, you know, exceptional. The training grounds now, world class facilities. The players we're attracting are some of the best in the world, and you'd hope that this can carry on now for a good few years. A good few years of dominance is what I'm hoping for now. Yeah, I hope that is the case. And I suppose that was sort of, or hopefully will be cemented by the, the transfer business Liverpool had done in the summer, Ross. And I know there was a lot of talk for a lot of time as to whether Thiago Alcantara would be coming to Liverpool. He has, of course, arrived. We've not seen a great deal of him, of course, after that challenge in the derby. But I suppose making that kind of signing after winning the Premier League title just sort of sends out a warning to the rest of the league that Liverpool aren't going anywhere. Well, yeah, definitely Thiago. A lot of talk about him before he came in and we got him in just before the end of the window, I think it was. And Like you say, we've not seen much of him, obviously, because of his injury. Got that injury in the Everton game. It's been a little bit strange in the club, I think, the way that they've not really said what the, the problem's been. the way. But hopefully now the signs of him training and he's going to be back. And I think that was a statement to get a player with that ability. And from what I have seen of him, he is going to he's going to give a real dimension to that midfield and I'm really excited about seeing him in the side come the new year. Yeah, Mark, I know you've spoken on the podcast about what he might offer to that midfield, but it was sort of a whirlwind couple of days, 48 hours, wasn't it? Thiago signing and then literally straight off the back of that, we'd all been sort of consumed with the Thiago saga. All of a sudden, Diogo Jota arrives and what a revelation he's been. 
Yeah, he's been very good so far, Guy. Um, and I think he's got a much higher ceiling, actually, than what he's shown. I think at times, you know, his final decision-making can get better in the opening weeks, but his productivity in front of goal has been fantastic, really. And I think, obviously, Liverpool were attracted to the deal. I think it was a deal, obviously, made in instalments throughout the, the, the years of his contract. But you could tell at Wolves, you know, he had the characteristics to be a really good player, a fluid front player in, in a front three system, um, mostly operating off the left-hand side. But a player who, who threatened the 18-yard box. So if you think about, I always think about the sort of the modern-day winger and how it's developed. I mean, you think back to the 90s and the, the most prominent wingers were sort of your gigs, Kinchelskis players like that who hooked the touchline, received the ball in a 4-4-2 and looked to get crosses into the box beat a fullback, it's very much different now. So you're looking at players who want to make that run, them runs from out to in, um, threaten the scoreline, threaten the outcome of the game in terms of goals. And he's certainly a player who looks like he fits that profile. And, and that's the kind of player I suppose Liverpool needed to bring in because far too often when one of the Solaro Manny was out of the team, Liverpool were having to adjust with square pegs and round holes. Origi's not really a wide player. Um, never never a good fit to play on that left-hand side because he's more of a, a central striker. And then you'd obviously add the likes of your Minamino is much more of a central player. Again, I think a floating player. So it changed the dynamics for Liverpool where uh, what they were looking to do was stretch the pitch with the wide players and they couldn't do that from one side of the pitch when either Salado Mani was out. So, so no, I think he's been a really, really good signing and someone who's who's came in and made, made an impact straight away, which is all you can ask, really. Yeah, definitely. Before we uh, wrap things up here then on this sort of post-game review special, we'll, we'll look ahead and talk about maybe what the Reds can hope to achieve in 2021 and even what they might look to do in the, the upcoming transfer window. But Ross, I want to touch on the Merseyside derby, maybe the most contentious game that the Reds have had this season. We've already talked about VAR, but of course the injury to Virgil van Dijk as well and Liverpool, of course, sort of being denied the uh, the three points in that game. Growing up for you, I suppose, it, it's it's been one of those, hasn't it, with Everton, where the rivalry, especially in the last sort of three or four seasons now, feels as though it's, it's moving into different territory and sort of highlighted with that game between the two sides at, at Goodison, where things did get a bit nasty. Well, yeah, it's, I think there's always been a bit of a nasty undertone sometimes in the derby. Liverpool have dominated it for so many years. We've... we've we win the majority. I don't know what the record is. It's got to be a good few years of winning games in the derbies. And yeah, it was it was a shame what happened to Van Dijk in that derby. There was a there was a lot of nonsense talked afterwards about Pickford and what he'd done. And it was it was a it was a football related injury. Let's be realistic. It was clumsy. Don't get me wrong, but these things happen. A lot of nonsense talked online and in the media afterwards, which I didn't really like. But that's you know that these things happen. Virgil Van Dijk is is obviously a huge miss. We're going to miss him for the rest of the season. But lads have stepped up, and it's been good to see some of the younger lads for me to step up and prove themselves almost. And yeah, I think that's that's been the positive that has come out of the injury in that derby. Yeah, how impressed on that? Just stay for a second, Ross. Have you been with sort of? The inventiveness that Jurgen Klopp has shown defensively, whether it be the likes of Fabinho tucking back in there, or even Nat Phillips and Reese Williams getting their chance, they've certainly not disappointed, have they? Yeah, I think I think they've both been excellent. Them, particularly Reese Williams, obviously he's played a little bit more games. He looks really good in the air. Obviously he's a tall lad. 
confident on the ball, does everything, just the simple things. He was getting caught, he's been caught out of position a few times, but that's going to be expected of a young lad. And he's been playing with different centre back partners. Obviously, Fabino's been excellent slotting in. There's obviously a lot, also a lot of talk of should Klopp have signed a centre back when he let Lovren go? Me personally, I don't think he should because he had Van Dijk, he had Gomez, he's got Matty, and he was obviously banking on Fabino being his fourth centre back. He can't legislate for Gomez and Van Dijk being out for the season. That's just one of them things. So we had the young lads coming in, they've been good. I think other lads have helped them around there with the experience. So yeah, I think that's been good. Yeah, definitely. Mark, what have you made of how Liverpool have, have dealt with the injury crisis? It's not only been at the heart of defence, it feels as though at some stage through this season, every part of the squad has been affected with injuries and yet Liverpool's still top of the tree. Yeah, I think they've done very well, Guy. I mean, they have been riddled with injuries, as you say, throughout the squad. I think the big area is obviously centre-half, though. And I don't think... I mean, as soon as Van Dijk from the Pickford Challenge, you knew it was a bad one. I totally agree uh, with Ross in that there's no way Pickford meant to mean it. He's just come out. However, the knock-on effect to Liverpool's season, I thought, was going to be massive. Van Dijk allows Liverpool to play the way that they do alongside Gomez. They are able to defend 1v1 scenarios, allow Liverpool to push higher up the field, cope in isolation. And Van Dijk, for me, I mean, people can talk about some of the the great centre-backs who've gone throughout world football, but there's never, for me, been a, a centre-back who ticks all the boxes like Van Dijk. You can't run him, you can't out-muscle him. He's fantastic in the air, a leader, fantastic distribution to play out when Liverpool are in possession, which often gets overlooked in how they cope in the build-up without him. And obviously, joined to that losing Gomez, I really feared for Liverpool. I felt him... And to be, to be fair, I think there's still a question mark because... I think if you were able to keep Matter and Fabinho fit and you were going to say that they're going to be your two centre-halves for the majority of the season, I think most fans would say, OK, you know, Liverpool can manage. Obviously, they'll be more vulnerable without Van Dijk. But they're, they're two top-quality players. I think the issue is Matip's injury record suggests and it will be the case that he is not able to stay fit. And then I think the big decision for Klopp will be how advanced he believes Reese Williams or Nath Phillips are to be able to come in and, and potentially play a large majority of the season, depending on how long a player might be out for. And I think that's still a massive question mark. I mean, obviously we know Nath Phillips was, was set to leave the club in the summer. And also Reese Williams has played at a much uh, lower level. And even when you look at the last two games, for example, in, in Fabino, he got caught not winning the header for Harry Kane to play through to to Bergwijn with the post and also Crystal Palace in the first half I think it was at 1-1 he got caught under the ball um, and it was a simple pass which Palace didn't make in the in the 18, in the 6 yard box to be able to draw level so there is still vulnerabilities there and I think it, for me it's the most interesting thing is what Liverpool will do in January and, and people go on about buying centre-halves but what, what centre-halves are that quality are available to come in so I think it's it's a really it's, a, it's going to be defined, I think, Liverpool's season potentially by can Matip stay fit. I think it's it's that big, really, if they don't go out and sign a, a potential replacement, which is, which is difficult in, the, in that market. That is a big if, isn't it, Ross? If Joel Matip can stay fit, what would, do you want to see Liverpool splashing the cash in January? Or do you think they've, they've proven thus far that they've been able to make do and they might just be able to get through the, to the end of the season? Um, like Mark said there, it's... 
it's it's who you're getting in January and what price you can get them in. It's you can't just go and sign sign anyone. You've got to you've got to trust in the recruitment and Klopp's always had the plan. He doesn't he's not someone who'll just sign someone for the sake of it just to fill a space. If he if he thinks there's a player that can come in and do a job, we'll go and get him. But if Klopp decides that what we've got now is enough, then I'll I'll back him all the way. Obviously, Matty, like Mark said again. Is in and out with his injuries. He's always going to be like that. So we've just got to hopefully rely on the youngsters to come in, keep everyone else fit. And me, I'd like to see them sign a centre back. Who I don't know. That's I haven't got a clue. But I personally don't think they will sign anyone. But I'd like to see them sign someone. Playing devil's advocate here, then I'll ask you first, Ross, and come to you, Mark, with the, the, the exact same question. What would you rather in January then, if Liverpool could get it done, sign a centre half or tie Genie Van Alden down to a new longer contract? <sighs> that's a tough one. <laughs> but um, Genie Van Alden, such a, a good player, such an influential player for Liverpool over the years. For me, that's to be Genie Van Alden. Tie him down. He's 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 the priority. I think definitely. I go for Genie. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Yeah, it's, a, it's a difficult one, guy. I think the other thing to mention about the centre-half situation is if you bring somebody in, I think Klopp's always a, ma- a massive one for, for working with a smaller squad. So you think to yourself, OK, you bring someone in for the short term to, to manage the injuries to Van Dijk and Gomez, and then what knock-on does that have when obviously then players come back available and back fit and you've got Matip as well? And I think that's why, obviously, the, the role of a fourth-choice centre-back is probably someone who plays in a different role or who can fill in. So that that's how I think Klopp's seen it in the past, and and that that's interesting to me as well. But on the on the Vinealdum situation, I mean, he's a top class player, able to receive the ball under pressure, very metronomic in the way he keeps the team ticking over. The only thing he hasn't got to his game is the ability to hit you with a pass, really, because every other aspect of his game, on and off the ball, is is fantastic, really, and also a great a great character by all accounts. I think he's well respected in the dressing room, and one of the most underrated qualities he has in football is the the ability to be available for so many games. So I think normally what you'd look at, you'd say to yourself, OK, he's a, a player in his 30th year. You're offering him a massive contract, which is obviously going to double his money because he came in for less from relegated Newcastle at the time. So you've got to weigh that up. But whereas many 30-year-olds, this is a player who's in peak physical condition, who looks like he, he shows no sign of waning in terms of that. But I, I do think it is a decision to make, though, and I can see why Liverpool maybe aren't going with it straight away and offering them perhaps what he wants, because they have to factor in that they have a squad, a lot of the, the first-choice players in the squad, who are almost growing old together. And what what sort of passage does that block for some of the other players who they might look to recruit in that area? Obviously, they've just signed Thiago, who's a similar age to Wijnaldum, and has a very different injury, injury record profile. So... Uh, I'd, out of the two options, I think in the short term, I'm not one for. I'm not one for buying on a short term basis, but I do worry about Matip, and I think if there was somebody available to plug that gap, um, that'd be my preference. If if he believes Reese Williams or Phillips Wayne of Wayne of the level, although I love Van Alden as a player. Yeah, no, he is a brilliant player, and as Ross suggested, probably was a, a bit of a harsh question to to throw at you guys. But we'll wrap up then and, and look ahead to 2021. 2020's been quite rotten, apart from Liverpool winning the title. But Ross, what are your hopes and aspirations for the Reds as we do sort of head into a new year? 
Well, it's obviously we're going into the new year, top of the table. Um, we've not hit top form, clearly. We've had a few games where we struggled. We've not nowhere near hit the heights we, had, we, we were at some point in the last couple of seasons. I'm obviously hoping we're going to win the league again. We're, it's it's a lot tighter this season. There's been some really old, strange results. I'm putting that down to COVID and the fan situation and all that. Some crazy results have gone on in the last few months. But we're still there, top of the table. Um, I still think Man City are main rivals, even though there's other teams up in the mix. I fancy them to drop off, like your Tottenham, who've already dropped off in Everton. And I can't see United challenging long term. So, league title, retaining the league title's got to be the aim to somehow get back in the ground, more fans back in the ground towards the end of the season. And obviously, we've got the Champions League on, it's on the back burner there. Good draw, I think, for Liverpool, Leipzig. Um, no reason why we can't go deep into that competition as well. So, obviously, football-wise, it's been good. We've won the championship this year, but it's been a terrible year other than that. So, well, hopefully, 2021 is going to be better and we can retain the championship. Yeah, let's maybe say a half full Anfield, a Premier League title and who knows, a Champions League to go along with it as well, Mark. Yeah. That'd, that'd yeah. be the dream scenario, wouldn't it? Yeah, Guy, I think I think if Van Dijk's fit, Liverpool win the league comfortably. I'd say probably at least 10 points, something like that. I think he's, he's that good. He makes such a difference. But I think with Thiago hopefully coming back to fitness now, I think where you're losing a world-class player or a, you know best in the world in one position, you may be gaining in another. And I'm really enthused to see how he's going to come into the Liverpool team now he gets fit. And I think that, that that may be able to get Liverpool over the line, certainly in the Premier League. Um, and competing at the, you know, obviously it's a knockout competition, so it's always difficult because it it relies on moments in games sometimes, as we've seen with Atletico Madrid. But Liverpool certainly have the squad to compete in, in both. I believe that um, it'll, it'll very much be the case that I think Thiago might make the difference. But like we talked about before, I think the two centre-backs have to stay fit. And if they do, Liverpool will win the Premier League and, and have an opportunity in the Champions League. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how it all plays out. Of course, there is still the game with West Bromwich Albion to come at Anfield tomorrow. The regular post-game podcast will be back after that. Of course, Jurgen Klopp's post-match press conference. We'll hear from our writers at the Liverpool Echo, of course, as well as our regular contributors. That That's it from us here, though, on this Boxing Day edition of the post-game podcast. My thanks to Ross and Mark for joining me. Guys, hope you uh, enjoy your Christmas and have a great time. And we continue to see the, the Reds leading the way in the Premier League. Cheers, yeah, guys. Wrong guy. Merry Christmas. Cheers. You've been listening to the Post Game Podcast on the Blood Red Channel.